We're joined by Kim Chi. Does this count as an emergency podcast, Brian? I don't it think definitely, it does. I think definitely does. It does. It is. Is or, is or not? It is. It is. Yeah. Course, okay, fabulous. Emergency podcast. I don't think it <laughs> is an emergency. I don't think it is an emergency podcast, but Brian thinks it is. So we're disagreeing already. Um, Kim, firstly, wonderful discussion. Um, I wanted to talk about Maha Hussein's um, prostate cancer. Kim, you should introduce yourself in a second. I know you're from Vancouver and you've been with us before. This is one of the worst introductions I've ever done, by the way. Um, but Kim, first, let's listen to what, you're, what, you, what you thought about Maha's presentation. Really interesting. Castrate resistant prostate cancer in a selected population of patients. I think it was ATM population and BRCA population in castrate resistant prostate cancer. It was ABI or Alaparib or ABI and Alaparib in combination. What did it show? Uh, well, morning, Tom. Uh, morning, Brian. And I'm not sure what qualifies for an emergency podcast. <laughs> we aren't but, either. Uh, I think it's very arbitrary. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if you spotted. There's lots of things on this podcast which are not clearly defined. <laughs> that, that's all good. All good. <laughs> I mean, Maha's study uh, is a great study, I think. It was uh, done in the era before we understood where PARP inhibitors stood in our current landscape. So I think we have to remember that. Um, but it's still the results... Um, actually answer some questions for us today. So it was a small study, only 20 patients per arm, and most patients, I think over 70% were BRCA2. So it really only applies to BRCA2 patients. And three arms, as you said, abiraterone versus alaparib versus the combination. Now the primary endpoint was to look at progression-free survival across the three arms. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, basically the combination versus the uh, single agents. Now, you know, one of the caveats that it is a small study, it's non-comparative. Uh, you can't compare the statistics. So it's really one of these phase two pick the winner designs. And indeed, it shows that the combination therapy is better than either single agent, abiraterone or olaparib. Now, we kind of knew this already, so I, I don't think this was any surprise. But what I like about the trial is that um, it built in a crossover. And none of the phase three trials... Kim, can I interrupt you? Can I interrupt you? Can I interrupt you yeah. before that? So do... Did we think the combination was better than monotherapy? And what evidence do we have prior to this the combination was better? Well, we've got the profound trial and the rucaparib trial showing that um, both olaparib and rucaparib uh, after an AR pathway inhibitor, um, uh, you know, are, are better than uh, uh, an alternate AR pathway inhibitor or chemotherapy. So I think it, it does show that. And then we have the trials with magnitude um, and Propel and Talapro-3, which show that combination of an AR pathway inhibitor plus, plus a PARP inhibitor is better than an AR pathway inhibitor. Uh, yes, what is novel is the Olaparib monotherapy arm. So we had not had that before, particularly in ARPI naive patients. And Kim, before you get to the crossover, um, first of all, I think this is one of the best named trials at ASCO-GU, the breakaway trial, genius. But I it liked only, it as well. Only 20 patients per arm. And I, I listened to Maha's presentation. I didn't quite get the stats around it. It seems like a huge effort for only 20 patients per arm, whereas you said in your excellent commentary, you know, it's really hard to make comparisons, right? Because it's small numbers and wide confidence intervals. So do you have a sense of why, why not enroll more? Was it, was it an accrual problem? Was it, I, just, I just didn't get that part. Well, they were only accruing BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM patients. Um, so it wasn't the wide ga wider gamut of HRR mutations, which occur in about 20 to 25% of patients. And as it happens, it was almost all BRCA2. So when you look at BRCA2 alone, the occurrence of those alterations are only about 5 to 8% of patients. 
just um, rare. and rich is pretty rare and when, yeah. and when you're going back and looking at the, the number of patients i think it was a selected patient population and again i think there's probably an element of um you know trying to get this done in a certain amount of time and, and, and again it goes back to the stats you can't you're actually not supposed to formally compare any of the right. three arms it, is, it really is a pick the winner design Tim, why can't we do a study or two studies using the same biomarker? Why every study has to have a unique biomarker? Uh, in terms of the, the panel of uh, all Yeah, this one's got typing. ATM and BRCA. The previous one's got a whole string of other bits and pieces thrown in. Some have ITT populations. One drug company uses one biomarker. We, we've really got, you know, why, why, why ATM and, and BRCA? Well, ATM doesn't appear to be the best, uh, most predictive of biomarkers, does it? No, it doesn't. In terms of response or PARP yes. like, and there's alterations, other alterations as well. You know, CDK12 is another one. But the problem is, you know, the studies have come out quite variable. Uh, for example, in the Talipro, uh, Talipro study, CDK12 actually came out as having some benefit from a PARP inhibitor, while, uh, you know, CDK12 and um, magnitude had no benefit. So I think there's been some uh, difficulty in understanding that. And I think it comes down to we don't have a perfect biomarker. We don't have a perfect, we have HRR mutation, but that doesn't necessarily, the cancer means that the cancer has HRR defect, right? Where we're we're using the mutation as a surrogate for having the cancer having a defect. You you used the word synergy which is no friend of our show because we haven't really shown much because <laughs> Brian and I, have never, and I have never achieved it before. Um, how, how, you know, you, is it really synergy or is it additivity or is the combination? I mean, cause that's quite a strong word. Do, do you think you, there was really synergy there? I do. For, and, and for the I, combination. I use, I use the word suggest and that comes from the combination. <laughs> I ignored that. <laughs> and it comes from the uh, crossover data. So if you look at the patients that crossed over, again, very small numbers, but if you look at the patients that crossed over. And what does um, crossover so, mean? Just for the, oh, okay, they yeah, crossed sure. over from what to what? Yeah, they crossed over either from abiraterone to alaprib or alaprib to abiraterone. Um, and if you combine sort of the, the combined or uh, progression-free survival from assignment or randomization through first progression to second progression, right, through the sequencing, it was about 16 months for both arms, for either of the arms. But when you looked at the combination arm, the progression-free survival was, I can't remember the exact number now, 36 or 39 months. So, you know, it's very tempting to compare those three arms, right? To say that, okay, if you do a sequential approach, you get 16 months of benefit. If you can get a combined approach, you have 36 or 39 months of benefit. Um, but statistically, you shouldn't do that. That's very wrong to do. So that's why I did. <laughs> I hasn't stopped us before. And yeah, what, what we have done these crossover trials before. One of the problems with crossover trials is lots of patients don't make the second part of the crossover. Exactly. And that's what the problem is because it's a selected, it, these are uh, selected patients that cross over. And it could go either way. You could say that these are the worst patients that crossed over, right? Because they're, they're the ones that progress first and end up crossing over. So it could make these crossover arms look worse. Um, and as well, the study just wasn't designed for this. So suggest so how we pull into that. How does this like impact practice, right? Because in practice, I think most people are giving the combination, right? For, yes. uh, certainly for BRCA, right? Yeah. So is yeah. it just sort of make you feel better that, yeah, the combination has at least additivity, if not synergy, uh, not yeah. a lot of extra toxicity. So it just reinforces current practice. 
I think it reinforces current practice. And, and there was a little bit of a, a debate. There was an editorial in, uh, recently by uh, saying that, you know, there, there's no evidence that um, a, a combination strategy is better than a sequential strategy. And there are downsides to a combination strategy. Uh, more toxic, right? You're exposing a patient longer to two agents. Um, there's a cost factor. Um, and, yeah. and so, you know, there are some downsides to a combination therapy. But, you know, with these results, particularly for BRCA2 patients, it really does support the use of combination upfront therapy. Kim, if you had, let's say, ENZA plus LHRH first line and um, you were planning and you had an HRR alteration and you're planning to use a Laparib as a monotherapy, should you be using it as a monotherapy with Abby or should you be using the combination in that population that's already had uh, an RP? Yeah, you know, so that's a, that's, a, that's a big debate, right? You know, so do we need to maintain AR pathway inhibition because of this potential for synergy with a PARP inhibitor? Um, uh, in that exact situation that you're saying, I would say no. Because we know that air abiraterone after enzalutamide has minimal activity. In fact, I would argue that the activity of abiraterone after enzalutamide is all from prednisone. Um, and in fact, you could actually be inciting the cancer to grow because there are mutations that occur after enzalutamide where abiraterone can actually um, increase androgen receptor signaling. So I would say that we don't have data uh, and I wouldn't recommend it. Kim, and, um, is there anything else? Sorry, Brian, you go. Let's, let's draw a line. I was going to ask about just PARP inhibitors in general. Are there studies ongoing, like looking at intermittent therapy or limiting therapy? You mentioned sort of combined therapy and toxicity and cost and otherwise. So, are there any? Is there any sort of like you know induction therapy and then and then limiting therapy? Are there any of those strategies that are being developed? No, no. If anything, we're we're probably going to end up getting even longer therapy because we're expecting amplitude and talapro 3 trials, which are looking at PARP inhibitors and castration sensitive disease to read out in the next year or two or so. Um, so yeah. if anything, we're gonna be looking at even longer therapy. Uh, and there, I, I would agree with you. I think we have to think about that because there is a risk, right? There is a risk with PARP inhibitors in inducing AML and MDS. Right. And we did see this with the Propel and the um, talapro 2 studies where you know, we started seeing some MDS and AML emerging. So if you go even earlier in castration-sensitive state, and especially in patients that don't have a BRCA2 alteration, uh, I think you know, we, we, there should be some concern about that long-term toxicity. And in, in practice, do you, like in, for TKIs and kidney cancer, right? we give breaks and sometimes short, sometimes long, et cetera. I'm wondering if it's similar in, in your clinical practice using PARP inhibitors. Are you giving no, patients routine breaks? Do they need them? No, they don't need them. I mean, at, yeah. once you kind of get on the dose, like you, sometimes you have to do a dose adjustment because of anemia and things at the beginning. Once they're on a good dose, they're fine, actually. And, you know, I've had patients on for two or three years. You know, you sometimes you see very, very robust responses. Kim, why didn't they do this study in an all-comer population and then look at the subset um, as they did in the, in, in, the, in the previous trials? Why did they start by looking at this biomarker selected population? Because if it was synergistic, some of the discussion has been before that interaction is positive in the HRR negative patients. And I think I heard that uh, discussed at right. the ODAC meeting and other bits and pieces. So have we learned that much from this by just focusing on this subgroup of patients? Well, I, I'm saying it's synergistic. I think we can only say it's synergistic in these BRCA2 patients where the HR defect is there. So the combined HR defect along with targeting the AR 
uh, that's where we're going to see the synergy. Um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I think we have to look at the non-HRR defect or mutant patients with some uh, circumspect. I don't think the data is quite, you know, there to uh, justify the benefit versus the risk ratio. And this specific population shouldn't sort of have wider implications in the in the HRR negative population. This is very specific for those patients with alterations. So wouldn't be what an argument for saying this is a, that we should be giving more alaparib and abi to patients without these these alterations. Yeah, and specifically BRCA2, right? BRCA2 patients have the worst prognosis and they get the most benefit. So it's really specific to these patients. I think you can't extrapolate it to the others. Kim, let's change wanna... gears. Oh, no, you yeah, go, I want to talk you about, go. I was going to change gears to Cabo Atezo. <laughs> you can be in charge of the gear stick. Awesome. Hey, Kim, I, I loved your commentary. I thought it was really balanced around Cabo Atezo. And, and Tom and I did a podcast with Niraj, and we you know, brought up some of the same points about adequacy I think you of the did control it, arm. We did it better. Of course I did, Tom. Thank you. Adequacy <laughs> of the control arm. Let me I'm saying Kim, I'm saying Kim did it better, not you, probably. Oh, oh. You're, getting, you're, you're, getting really, you're misinterpreting my opinion of your, what you're saying. Um, you know, I, to me, you know, it's contribution of components, right? You know, and it's Cabo alone has activity. And although there was no survival to Comet 1, that was back in the day when RPFS didn't seem to carry as much weight, right? Yeah. It seems like we've, the, we, the prostate cancer field, sort of turned the corner and said, you know what, this is a valuable endpoint. And obviously we'd love OS, but aren't always going to get it. So... I, you know, I guess that's what I'm struggling with, with the data. And I, I think to me, your opinion was pretty clear that it's, it's not yet a standard of care. And I'm just wondering if you could ex- expand on that. And where, where do you think we go from here? Clearly there's some activity, right? I, I don't yeah. believe in the synergy that, that was proposed around TKIs and IO. And I'm as big of a fan of those combos and kidney cancer as anybody. I don't think we've really proven it. Uh, maybe yeah. added, you know, additivity, but not synergy to our previous you know, commentary. But I, I just don't know where to go with this combo now. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, honestly, uh, I think the activity was fairly low um, and consistent with what you could see with Cabozat numbers as a single agent. As you said, we did a, a trial and reported back in 2016 now where the radiographic progression free survival was 6.6 months in a more heavily pretreated patient population. They had the ARPI and docetaxel um, right. with no overall survival difference. And that was against prednisone alone. Um, I have to say I was actually unimpressed with the phase 1B expansion cohort as well that, uh, you know, studied this combination in MCRPC patients. Again, they showed a response rate of 23%. Um, however, you know, Cabozan the, the, the does have a response rate, uh, and it's really hard to tell whether what, what was going on there. And the progression-free survival was actually 5.5 months. So, you know, not really that yeah. interesting to me, to be honest. Um, and, but Niraj you know, made they, the point. Niraj made the point. He thought these were really different populations. His study contact and then the uh, uh, comet one. But I don't. I don't know that say. they're that, that that different. I mean, you could say one's better, one's worse, one's worse, one's better. But it's not. It's not like this study is is significantly worse. Yes, more visceral disease, but as you say, you know, no prior chemo. So. Yeah. And some of these patients could have, you know, lymph nodes and, and, and bone nets, right. which is, you know, uh, and some of them probably could have just had lymph node disease. So it's really hard to cross compare, but, you know, the results are kind of consistent. Um, and then, you, you know, you have this result of an RPFS benefit over a very weak compared. And I would say, you know, we can talk about that, whether it's, a, whether it's appropriate in this patient population or not. But even if you just take the study results in of itself, you have an RPFS benefit, which really means 
of two months, which is really the spacing between one scan and the next. That doesn't mean that patients are getting two months of benefit. It just means, you know, one scan versus the next. So I really question the clinical significance of that. And then there's no other benefits, right? There's no quality of life benefits, no overall survival benefit. So, um, you know, at this point in time, it would be pretty hard to recommend this over the other alternatives. I think so, to your point, if, if there were pain benefits, quality of life benefits, even though you'd love more than two months, if there were some significant you know, non-RPFS benefits, so to speak. I yeah. think it might be more palatable, um, so, even if there's not a survival. So yes, give a couple, I, I couple, couple of questions for me. Firstly, the prostate cancer community historically has been comfortable with RPFS, and this was statistically significant. Um, and that control arm that was used, the LPI, has been used in a number of previous studies. And, you know, you were a bit critical of the control arm but you know we have to be consistent across the board and 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 so are you saying that all of the trials that use this as a control arm should be set aside yeah definitely not um and the reason i say this is because we ha i think we have to go back to the patient what's appropriate for patients so if you take a patient population and we all have them where they have slowly progressive disease, rising PSA, but no other changes on their scans, a um, small number of bone mats. And we all can pick these patients out as, yeah, we could defer chemotherapy in those patients. Um, and, 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 a, and a standard practice, common practice is to do an ARPI switch. And, and we and others have all shown that there is some activity of doing an ARPI switch, particularly going from abiraterone to enzalutamide, um, which can be you know, prolonged. And we have seen this come to bear in a well-selected patient population in phase three trials. And we'll take the PSMA-4 that was recently reported and the SPLASH trial, which was reported out in a press release. So if you look at the control arms where they did ARPI switch, these were well-selected patients, PSMA PET positive, which is good prognosis disease, very few liver mets. I think it was only 3% of patients with liver mets on PSMA-4. Um, and, uh, and, and they were deemed to be able to defer chemotherapy. They had a radi radiographic progression-free survival of six months. So we can't, you know, there is some benefit to doing an ARPI switch in well-selected patients. However, and, in the- uh, in, So you go, the, you go. Yeah, yeah, in the contact two study, a completely different population, 40% visceral metastases, you know, uh, they all had measurable lymph node metastases at least. So, you know, I, I, I would have a hard time giving an ARPI switch to that patient. Those patients would, you know, I'd give chemotherapy to. Yeah, I thought and that so was I, a great point that it's the control arm is not inappropriate for everyone, but maybe for some. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So let's move on to the second point. So <laughs> P, positive PFS, which we like and will, which people like in prostate cancer. Brian, I've done many podcasts. People have told us many times that you, you don't need OS. It's very hard to achieve OS. And indeed, in the PMSA4 study, the OS signal was 1.18, whereas here the OS is 0 0.78. It's trending in the right direction. It's going the right way. Um, and so you could argue, actually, that this data set is more robust in that respect than perhaps the PMSA-4, which at least has got OS, which is you know, 0 0.78 and may, you know, may, may improve with time. Whereas, you know, PMSA-4, 1.18. This appears from an outsider to be a more robust data set than that. Yet PMSA-4, people were you know, putting flags on top of buildings where here people seem to be less keen. <laughs> well, I, you know, one of the things that concerns me is the control arm where... 
um, there was a very little subsequent therapy being used. So only about 20 or 30% of patients got subsequent therapy. Uh, and of that, uh, even less were getting chemotherapy. Uh, to me, you know, perhaps these patients lost opportunity to get effective therapy, which is chemotherapy. Chemotherapy consistently shows a radiographic progression-free survival of eight or nine months in recent phase three trials. So, you know, uh, why weren't these patients treated with chemo? If they could have gotten Cabo and Atezo, I'm sure they could have gotten chemotherapy. So this really concerns me. So even if an overall survival advantage emerges, is it because you did harm to the patients on the control arm? I mean, that's, those are strong words. Those but, are strong um, words. And we have to push we, back a little bit on those. We, and, um, well, so think, is, is there any evidence? Do you feel strongly that, because it is a similar control arm to we're using before. I understand there's a degree of patient selection involved, but it's not complete. And there is some overlap in the population. Do you feel that you, most of the community is in, you know, would be in your camp with this? And do you, and, and, and would you have enrolled into this trial? Uh, I, I, I did not participate in this trial, so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I think that answers it. Well, I think Niraj made the point, I'm trying to remember his presentation, that actually the performance of the control arm was quite good, right? I don't know if that was from the, I think that was from the OS curves, right? The OS was 14 months, if I'm quoting the number right? Something yeah, like typically, that? Typically, it's 20 months, you know, after an okay. uh, ARPI switch. So if you look at PSMA4, the median survival is 20 months. It's kind of consistently 20 months after an ARPI okay. switch. So the, this is a poor population that did have uh, a worse survival. Okay. Kim, this has been fabulous. Um, I know you're in an airport lounge. You're about to get on a plane. This is the last <laughs> thing you're doing at ASCO GU. Brian and I are thrilled, honoured, uh, and, uh, and in awe of, uh, as always, of your, of your work. Um, <laughs> We hope we're going to see you super soon. Enjoy your time back in Canada. And thanks for joining us today. We're both really grateful. All right. Bye-bye. Appreciate you. Travel safe.